Welcome back. And this week we have Dennis Cruz joining us from the world of security. Have a little guess, though, on just how long it takes for Rach and Dennis to geek out over Wardley mapping. And let me tell you, it's not very long. Enjoy. Dennis, uh, how you doing? Very good, thank you for inviting me to be here. Brilliant, delighted to have you here. So what does uh, what does business change mean to you, Dennis? So for me, it's about finding a path that is easy for the business to um, go through that will allow him, or here the business, to make the required changes or, that we want without being a big disruption. Because so I, I come from the security side, so I've been doing security and application security and now as executive as a, a CISO uh, from a security angle. And security is a massive, almost factory of change. So the security teams are the ones who always go, oh, can you fix this? Can you patch this? Can you implement this? Because we kind of see the side effects of that. Yeah. So I kind of very sort of rapidly, once I go into security, start to learn about techniques to how to drive change into you know, the parties I was interacting with. And you kind of start with the security angle, but you very quickly realize that what you really are driving is business change. Yeah. You're driving process change. You, you can't fix an HR workflow without fixing, fixing HR. You can't fix a development workflow without sometimes fixing development. It's, uh, it's fascinating, uh, fascinating how the market has moved on. I remember managing security teams 20 years ago, and it was very much almost computer says no. Yeah. You know, the default was, was that, and, and you're right, things have, things have evolved, uh, you know, tenfold. Yes. See, I, I view that our job in security is to allow the business to go as fast as they can, or to like, actually to change as fast as they can, under the risk threshold that they're comfortable with. So in a way, it's all about risk. Even change is about risk. Yeah, for sure. So if you think about it, you know, when you want to drive a particular change, what you really want is to have a very good understanding of what are the side effects. The problem I found is that most of the time, this is done very unscientific. Very decisions are not made pragmatic. They're not fact-based. The, sometimes the, the entities that have the right data are not part of the conversation. And there's a lot of decisions and change that is kind of decided without having a full picture of actually what's going on. Now, security has an interesting angle that we sometimes tend to talk in reality because we can say, well, this just happened or we just exploited this or this is a, a compliance that you have to do. So there's a, a more interesting stick sometimes that you can use, but it's very, uh, I would say, very dangerous to use the stick. Although yeah. it's there and although, you know, especially with you know, sometimes a lot of the high profile exits recently, but I always find that if you have to mandate something, you already lost the conversation. Yeah, I would agree with that. Um, and, and something I wanted to pick up on, on something you've just said there, but are there tools that you've come across that you find useful in, in managing business change? So I said the first sort of tool that uh, I've been working for a while and I really implemented quite heavily recently is really to um, sort of graph everything. So I, I go to maps in a second. So first you have to graph the organization, i.e. so we're using ticketing systems like Jira or others, but the idea is to break down every component into something that you can now digitally capture and connect to each other. And the advantage of that is that what you're doing is you're representing reality in a hyperlinked way. 
Because reality is hyperlinked. Yeah, you have a role, the role is assigned to responsibilities, responsibilities assigned to projects, you belong to a program, you have stakeholders, you're fixing things, etc. So all those connections we end up putting in this kind of node in the graph. And what that allows us to do allows us to have a clarity of understanding of what we do and why we do this and why we do that in understanding. And it was very interesting. My kind of big paradigm shift was when I got into worldly maps, which is something I know you're also quite into. That solved me a lot of problems I had with the graphs, because the graphs almost tells you relationships from A to B to C to D, etc. What it doesn't have is that sense of movement. It doesn't yeah. have that sense of why do I do that versus that, and, and it also doesn't allow you to do strategy on top of it. So I feel that that was probably one of the biggest toolkit that I've learned kind of in the last couple of years, and, but also how to do that scale. And that's where they need the technology, because you know, once you get into 20 types of issue types and, and 40 link types and you know, thousands of nodes, you actually need uh, that kind of you know, technology versus a spreadsheet, which is what most people tend to use, which doesn't scale. Yeah, I think, um, I mean, I, I knew it would take us less than five minutes to start talking about worldly mapping, <laughs> um, both of us being heavy advocates for it. Uh, but, but I, I mean, I too use it as a powerful tool uh, from a business change perspective. Um, it's fascinating for me hearing how you do the precursor work there yeah. um, around the connections. And as you were describing how you then use the Wardley mapping, mm -hmm. the movement bit for me is the powerful bit because the organisations I've worked in are ones that normally are uh, calling me in to cause a disruption um, and unpick something that isn't working. Yeah. Uh, and of course, once you can create a map, um, you can also create a route through some of that chaos. Um, so uh, yeah, it was uh, it was an interesting um, an interesting explanation for me the precursor work there. But here's what I found: I found that today, if I, if I was very pragmatic and objective, I think more in maps than actually the end user sees it. Because what I found is I found um, some of the use cases that Simon uses are very good from the top down. Right, yeah. and 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 it clearly worked very well. It has great examples. I kind of tend to live more in the sort of real world, more in the kind of um, actionable world, where what what I realize that we are still getting into the graphs. We're still struggling in some ways to even just get the graph data to yeah. correct, almost get the language. Now, what I what I really like about what the maps gave me was the direction. So I now can now, because I know I'm going to go that way, and there's yeah. some case where we have used it, but a lot of the times it's just the fact that I can already think in the, in the map world and to understand some of the dynamics and some of the gameplay, how it works, already made my graphs way more effective and my thinking a lot more clear. Yeah, that's interesting. I, um, I use the, the mapping to test my gut feel. So my gut feel will override um, initially mm -hmm. most of, you know, you have a, you, you spend 20 years in businesses, you start to see the same problems, see the same challenges, yeah. um, and I use it as a way of evidencing my thinking, and, and it isn't always right yeah. by any stretch, but it then provides that evidence to allow for, for the discussion, uh, which is powerful. Um, and, and can you talk to us a little bit um, about, in your career, where you've achieved business change? So, it has been the situations where we're able to, for example, take a team that was behaving in a certain way, and then 
use in this case certain security practices or some security changes, sorry, sorry, security side effects to to make the team change their how they behave. Now the trick here is that it's very easy to go with the big set of vulnerabilities, which is almost like a baseball bat, and, yeah. and break the whole thing and says, "Well, but you know, you, you spent two years building this, and look, we just broke it." What I what I found very interesting, and because I have a development background, I went into root causes is to then start to change how they develop, start to find how can we find the security issues sooner, which is when you go into um, actually putting practices that allows them to behave differently. So a great case study is every development team wants documentation. No development team has decent documentation. It's like a party trick is always show me your documentation. And some guy of girls starts drawing a map, right? yeah. so it's, saw some boxes, right? But the reality is they all want it. In fact, even Agile, I think, made a key mistake by saying you don't need documentation. Documentation is the code, or we code too fast and we don't need documentation, which is just ridiculous. Yeah, and I but think it's bollocks. It's bollocks, absolutely, yeah. right? Because, you know, in fact, to go faster, you need very effective documentation. The problem is why documentation doesn't occur. So the trick, for example, that we use, very interesting, was to say, if you ask a team to document what they do or how the architecture of the system works or even the flows of yeah. a particular HR solution, right? Um, they'll go join the queue, right? Join the backlog that goes into that pile that somehow never gets prioritized. If we say you need to do a thread model of that system, which a thread model is basically an architectural review of how it works. And it's when you map the components or draw the components and understand the relationships, understand the flows of data, yeah. and then ask questions. What if this happens? What if that happens? What if that happens? Guess what happens at the end? You actually get diagrams because you ask very interesting questions. So that component connects that component and that component. So what happens when that one fails? What happens when this thing happens? And, and what's very interesting is that the best almost change I saw in teams were when teams would do that, eventually not because they wanted the thread model, because they realized that the thread model was a nice excuse to do something they want to do, but then they start to use that in their own meetings. They start to use that in their own planning. They actually would maintain that practice, not because it was mandated, but because he added so much value yeah. that when you go back out of it, you don't want it. And, and recently, the other great example we had is we started to create a lot of Slack bots for the data. So we took the data that we have in Jira, we put it into Elasticsearch, which is a hash database. And then what we do is we consume all of that through you know, serverless environments on Slack. You know, Slack, the yeah, environment. Yeah, yeah, we use it extensively. But the real part of that, it, it brought all the data and the quality of the data that we had dramatic increases because you had the feedback loops. So you suddenly have team members, and sometimes very inexperienced team members that could learn a couple of commands, and suddenly they could interact with the data. Yeah. And that's very powerful, because it creates these sort of feedback loops that allow me to show one of the things that I always want to explain to the team that I sometimes couldn't, was there's a very strong tendency to try to control the quality at the gate, to try to restrict the, 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 the almost gates of quality. The problem with that is that there's so many variations, there's so many people that have data that you need that what I found is that if you have very effective feedback loops, quality becomes an immersion property. So what happens is if you keep presenting to the multiple individuals the reality, is this correct, is that correct, or this is what it looks like and this is the information, they will correct their own little bit which isn't, doesn't feel a lot, and actually they're the main experts on that area. But in the big thing, yeah. you know, a, a very simple example is that, you know, who fixes this? 
right? Here's an issue. In an organization, just finding who is the exact person to actually going to fix that is a massive effort. Because it might belong to a team that doesn't exist, it might belong to another environment, it might be here, you don't know the side effects of that. So there's even making those connections and understanding that is so powerful. So we were very successful in, in creating these feedback loops uh, and eventually we actually used Jupyter, uh, Jupyter Notebooks, which is what the data science crowd used, which yeah. is super powerful. And that, again, they, when they used that, they were able to access all that data that we had in Jira, but to create these environments where suddenly you could put an explanation and then you put some technical data, you put a diagram, another explanation. So you almost create a story, create a narrative. And that for me was the big thing when I realized that the big mistake is always to try to push to the other entity your side of the, the world, your view of the world. Almost The nice thing that we're in the graph world is that you can reverse engineer what the other side cares about. What are their priorities? You can also ask. Yes, yes, you yeah. can do that. And then you make the connections to your world. And then I remember the first time I told the team that we needed to create 50 decks. They were, you know, it was almost a civil war, right? Like, <laughs> but the reality is in my head, we're going to create 500, which is what we do now, because now we create decks programmatically. But because I knew that every single stakeholder needs a dedicated deck, a dedicated presentation, yeah. whether on a slide or, or a, a screenshot or something that only makes sense to that person. But then that, by nature, creates the buy-in and allows for the conversation. Because yes. what you do is you reverse engineer what context. What are the three things that you care about as an executive or a person or a, um, somebody that is working on a particular team? And then you make the connections with your world. So you can find two, three, four nodes down the line what matters. Yeah, that makes a, makes a lot of sense. Um, and in implementing that approach, um, or in implementing business change before, what challenges have you come across? So I think my biggest challenge is I, I'm a very naturally embraced change. I think I have uh, a very native ability to like change, to want to learn, to reinvent the wheel. And I guess maybe because I have a very strong open source sort of background and experience, I've learned not to care about what I create. And that's why I share everything, I release yeah. everything in Creative Commons. So I've learned that it's worse to keep, you know, working on something that now should I evolve than actually throw it away and, and use a better idea. But I, and I found sometimes my challenge is I have to pace the change to the teams I work with because sometimes um, there's, there, there's definitely a natural ability of how much change a person or a team can take. And it's always fascinating to see a team resisting change here, then eventually they get it and they get into the next level and then they behave like that is now the, the golden one. Yeah. And then it, it's almost like I feel like, can't you remember when, you know, when, when, when I show you like two steps ahead? You know, can we get like some credit here for the next part? But I think, and, and this is the thing, it's almost when you have a diverse team, and, and I, I love diverse teams. I, you know, I've I made a lot of efforts to hire, I, I quite, you know, I think even successful, we hired a very diverse team, and it's interesting because you do have different speeds, you do have different dynamics, but you do make, make it better in the end. So in, sometimes it is okay to have a certain resistance to change because it also sometimes means that the ideas are not strong enough. Yeah. And so breaking through that yeah. um, and, and allowing for that discussion and debate um, is, is, yeah, is powerful. And what about, um, what about a lasting legacy? So, um, you know, change can be forced through, mm -hmm. um, but, but how do you ensure that the change 
that you've been involved in uh, stays in place, whether you stay in an organisation <clears throat> or you move on. Um, uh, you know, can you give us a, an insight into yeah. that? So it's, it's interesting. So I was at the board of OWASP, which is the Open Web Application Security Project, which is a big community. It was the kind of the community of the, the, the geeks that cared about application security before it was even a thing. Right? So yeah. now people take advantage but, you know, or care about it. But you know, 10 years ago or 15 years ago, you know, we were the only group that did that. And I kind of helped grow the community. And it was very interesting because it's a complete open source organization. And what I've learned is also what, what lasts is the culture. So what lasts is, is not necessarily a particular project or a particular thing, is, is certain philosophies, is certain workflows, or certain decisions that you make or you push that create a culture that eventually that becomes really hard to go around it. And it's interesting because sometimes even I might argue that some of the people that come after you might not fully understand your vision, but as long as those cores are there, and um, is um, it holds? That's what I see. That's what I like a lot about the idea. There's there should always be a degree of civil disobedience in environments and organizations because they actually sometimes keep the north correctly aligned. Yeah. And and they and 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 a friend of mine sometimes says that what I tend to do is I he called ant management, <laughs> where where basically and I kind of view it like this. It's it's kind of like creating very strong paths where the ants go. So the ants tend to go all over the place, but eventually there's feedback loops that create these very strong paths. And then and once they're there, you can even sometimes can't disrupt it. They they're really strong. And actually, in case of technology, they they can even become very solidified, very very strong. It's um it's really interesting, uh, Dennis, because as you were talking. Um, I couldn't help but have a, an example in my mind um, where I'd had to fight so hard for adoption of um, moving away from a proprietary piece of software and it was a content management system um, and pushing forward for the adoption of an open source CMS um, and it was at the NHS um, and it was when we were transforming NHS choices into NHS.UK and um, we had such a fight trying to get the NHS to move from a proprietary setup, um, and and now they've embraced Wagtail, um, and it's second nature. Yeah. And everything that's now been built on top of the NHS.UK platform, mm -hmm. as everything is, um, it comes from the open source decision to move to that CMS, yeah. um, and it's it's funny. Uh, looking back on it now because it's second nature and it's like those discussions almost never happened yeah. um, you know uh, and, and it was greeted with open arms please bring the open source and you remember mm, and I, I remember I was there. it was a bloody nightmare <laughs> uh, and people were not as keen for that but um, it's um, yeah it's fascinating yeah. I think once you know once those um, Sparks. Hard decisions yeah. Yeah, are embedded and yeah. you know you've had the you've had the, the discussions um, but it's lovely to see that movement yeah. taking things forward. You know, I stand back now two years after I've left and see that stuff, and I'm yeah. I'm incredibly proud to have played a you know a, a small part in that. Um, but that's where security is very interesting, because security, especially when I say you're in a modern security environment, it allows you to have conversations that otherwise would be very hard. So I, I had lots of sessions where we called thread modeling or security review. That if you rename you know the title of that meeting as 
you know, review of HR processes or, or analysis of proprietary versus yeah. commercial versus open source or architectural analysis or choose this, you'll be a much better title. But because we approach it from a security, i.e. from a fact-based world, we could have certain conversations where otherwise we're very political. Yes. So I, I had exactly those conversations, open source versus, I actually remember once having to do a conversation with Java versus PHP, right? And I was brought in because the Java guys thought that I was going to defend Java. And, and I started saying, well, and look at this objectively, right? Yeah. You know, you have a really strong PHP team here. You have this. They understand this. You have a Java th new technology, unproven, XYZ. Now you're comparing Java, a, the latest Java, which PHP 5. No, let's compare them side by side. So it's almost like when you look at it and certainly the difference weren't that much. And it's the same thing sometimes with commercial versus proprietary, so versus open source. Yeah. It doesn't mean that the right choice is either or the other, but you should be able to get there almost from a factual and a rational way that security in a nice way gives you that independence, that sort of almost environment where you just say, no, we just have a lot of attention to detail, right? I know that it's all magic and it's great, but can you answer this, this, yeah. and this? <laughs> you, know, you know, nothing personal, but if you claim ABC, I just want to see the evidence, right? So I can judge for myself. And I think that's uh, that's such an interesting angle. I hadn't uh, I hadn't thought of security in in quite that way. But you know, coming from a heavy evidence base, it does allow for uh, it does allow for that uh, that that debate. And security is the only entity in the organisation that can talk to everybody. We think about it. It's the only one that can go all the way from senior management, all the way to the bare to the metal, even you know to the office workers if you need to. The people on the ground, the people in the factories. It talks to everybody. Yeah. And that gives you such an amount of access, access to data information that very other teams don't have. Now, most security teams don't leverage that. They, they don't view that their job or they don't, they don't facilitate. I always view that our job is the more connections, the more common points, the more we help somebody when we're in, in the middle of an incident, you need those relationships. Yeah. But also it allows you to say, well, you say X, but in reality I'm seeing Y and Z and A and B. So, you know, hey, can you just talk to each other? And sometimes that's enough to unblock it, it, a lot of it things. It is, and I think the, the dark art of, um, you know, of, of IT and, and digital and security sitting in a darkened room with a towel over their head, mm. thankfully those days are, are long gone. And, you know, we, we all have a responsibility to be able to engage with the business yeah. and, and ask, um, ask and be challenged on some of those things. So, so as an individual, what makes you want to drive change? Um, you know, what, what makes you want to drive change over sitting with the status quo? I guess because I like to create. I, I, th I think what, what's, what's amazing is this path that you, you have ideas. And I, I'm the first one to tell my team that I, I only think 70% of my ideas are any good. Right? And I ad lib very, you know, very easily. And I improvise and I, I, I challenge and, and myself. But I, I, what I found very, very amazing is to have a bunch of different ideas, a bunch of different paths, and then see them materializing. And, and sometimes I, 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 there's interesting moments where sometimes you know, somebody would say, well, why didn't you explain that to me a month ago? I was like, well, a month ago, I didn't know that was the path. Well, I know the direction was there. Right? In fact, if I explained you a month ago all the different ways we could have gone to something like this, you probably would have freaked out because, you know, <laughs> there's so many permutations in, in my head that you could get there. But I found it fascinating to, to be able to detract back and remember that it was that idea, it was that little thing, it was that sort of 
you know, moments. And I guess with, with experience, I've learned to recognize those. I've, with experience, I, I kind of try to tell my team, I say, I live sometimes in the future, so that means I, I sometimes go ahead, see kind of what's happening or how this particular thing will pan out, and then I, I, I kind of learn to trust my instinct, but also know that a good idea is an idea that the more you do it, the better it becomes. A bad idea is one that, or maybe a not very good idea is one that, the more you look at it, the more you try to operationalize it, it, it starts to have more curveballs. It starts to have more, it gets kind of complicated, where a good change is one that gets smoother. In fact, there's a curse, because the curse is that uh, most um, the people that are not involved in the transformation, they won't realize the transformation. So, and, and, and in some ways, Apple got really good at this, where, especially in the early days of, of Steve Jobs, at pushing a lot of change that yeah. just felt natural. And that's why I'm also a very big fan of design, because design is how things work. And when you design something effectively, um, it just works, it feels natural. So a good example is when you can present something to somebody in a meeting or a session on a workflow and almost they didn't realize what you just did, which is a blessing and a curse. So, so ironically, some of the most effective use of maps I've used, nobody realized that we were looking at a worldly map. Yeah, that's because fun. if you have to explain how it works, it's already bad, like things should be smooth. And that's why the feedback loops are so important because it, you should be continuously making it better, 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 better until you get to the point where you can't take anything out. It just feels natural. And then somebody else can adopt it, then that's the sweet spot. Yeah, I, uh, I would agree with that. Um, I think it's, um, I mean, whilst I, I personally find the, the tool an easy one to consume, I've also been using it for five or six years. Yeah. Um, so there's, there's an art, isn't there? There's a, yeah. a real skill around that. Um, and, you know, just from a, just touching on security for, for, for a second, um, security has come through various changes in the way that IT and, and digital have over the last decade. Um, but, you know, there's a, there's a bit of a groundswell that security is, is quite a sexy area to be working at the minute. Mm -hmm. um, there's a lot more people moving into that space. Mm -hmm. um, perhaps you can just share a little bit about how the market has changed and some of the skills that you're seeing come into that sector. Well, because now it's real. You know, it's, <laughs> it's that simple. If you go back 10 years ago, there was definitely a couple of companies that would definitely, you know, would have to... Uh, be, you know, taken more seriously, but the impact to the normal user, the impact to most companies was reasonably benign. Yeah. But if you look at a lot of the intersections that we had in the last years, is where you have more and more technology used by more and more people, used by more and more companies. Sometimes they don't understand the side effects of what they have, and you keep piling these one on top of the other. Um, and the fact that the criminal's business model is evolving, because the main thing about security is, you know, apart from very small little environments, or no, big environments, small little markets, it's all about the criminal's business model. It's all about how does the criminal enterprises, which are enterprises, are monetizing that. It's not because you can have a crazy vulnerability here or that it will be exploited. It's until somebody finds a way to make money out of it or shame you if they into that. But even that, it's, it's not for the faint of heart. So, so it, the, what has happened in the last you know, five, three years is is that conversion of the business model of the attackers with more and more technology that is in, into our environment, a massive move to digitalization, which eventually, and, and again, the cloud helps a lot, but also introduces other, other angles that are problematic. But yeah, it's, it's definitely an area that it's a lot more real. 
But it's, it's most security. It's not like the movies. It's not like the, you know. I mean, you're the, almost selling it to me. I can feel a change in career coming. There is, um, <laughs> there is. For me, security is about driving change. That's how I view it. So again, if you look at security in a healthcare environment, I think there is. If you look at the identity of the user, like for example, today there's cancer that can't be addressed because we can't share data yeah. effectively. There is information that we don't have today because we haven't found ways even to securely process that or those interconnections. But but also to apply, I find it fascinating to apply what I've learned from a security angle and secure coding and connections with, with healthcare because actually, if you think about it, an ecosystem is a great safe environment. Yeah. It, it balances, you know, we, you will have virus, you will have all things, but you have a very strong uh, antibody system, you have a very immune system. And that's, that's the right approach to security. It's, it's, I used to tell management that I'm not in a job of preventing incidents, I'm in a job of preventing crisis. And I'm not here to make them secure, I'm here to make them safe. Yeah. Which is very, very different. Yeah, it is. It's interesting, the healthcare piece, um, because, you know, the, um, I guess the model uh, from a national healthcare service perspective, um, you know, that the, the, the fundamental business model was built 70 years ago for a very mm -hmm. different population. Um, and um, in a lot of ways, it was designed as the national sick service rather than health because yes. it's been treating sick people. It hasn't been about prevention. Yeah. Um, and, and I think the interesting bit that we are now seeing is in um, opening up an ecosystem yeah. and people becoming their uh, data donors and owning their own data. Yeah. Um, you know, security and the flexibility around that, but with the if you pardon the pun, security blanket right. of that security is going to become very, very important. But the trick part is that we now have large chunks of our society, especially technology society, that are based on the business model of not having privacy. Right? And that's a big problem. Yeah. Because we lost half in, in the middle of the whole terrorist stuff and the whole the, the kind of complete security theater that occurred on that. Security theater is when you have stuff that don't really add value, you're just pretending to do stuff, yeah. right? Is that we lost this idea that you own your data and the idea that privacy is a, you know almost a, your human right, which I believe. And so what I describe is, is now business models that are based around you controlling your data. It's based around you controlling what happens to it, understanding the side effects of that data, uh, how much you share, how much you don't share, etc. And and I believe that's the future. And I believe that's yeah. where we need to go. That's a small fact of some of the big tech companies, some of the big governments who kind of don't want... It's almost like they... It's not that they don't want that. It's just that their business model yeah, is, doesn't, doesn't go that way. A friend of mine used to say that it's very hard for someone to understand something when your lunch depending not understanding or yeah. your salary depends on you not understanding it, right? So, but that, that world of us controlling the data and allowing that... that ability to leverage in a way technology is if when you look at healthcare like the advances that we can do in society are, yeah. are tremendous and you put the open source element to it and it doesn't mean that's not for profit it doesn't mean that there isn't added value to be created but it's almost like we need to change the rules of the game which yeah, actually going back to your point is how you create legacy you change the rules of the game and which is what I really like about the worldly maps is not just the evolution from genesis to the commodity is what happens when something reaches a commodity. So what I can, the interesting angle here is that when you can push something to a commodity, your legacy is everything that gets created on top of that. Yeah. And that's the really interesting part. And I think, um, I think the ecosystem 
part there for me and a strong view I've, I've always held is that the you know the National Health Service shouldn't try to be a tech provider it should open up safely and securely the data yeah. and allow the experts to build the platforms and create the tools and yep. you know we've gone um, quite a long way towards that with um, NHS.UK with the apps library um, but but there's some you know there's some really interesting um, interesting news cases out there that uh, that will revolutionize what we're you know what, what we're doing and how we're doing it and then you hit the real one which is how do you then drive change in a society, in a culture, in an environment, and how, you know, it's almost like we need to apply the same methodology that was used by some of the big, you know, companies in the world to change how we behave, but almost for the good. Yes. Right? You know, there's, you know, there, I, I remember this very interesting, almost like, you know, worrying, but you can see them doing, is, is this strategy of, for example, reducing how we think about privacy, reducing, like little, you can see that little by little, they push, they come back, they push, come back. It's almost, okay, so you use that for a particular game. Why don't you do the same thing to, to drive behavior, yeah. to actually do it in an open way, to say, hey, if you want to play the game, here are the rules. You know, it's open data, open standards, open software, you know, but open environments, open ecosystems, there's no black magic, there's, you know, I, 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 used, to, I used to kind of joke when, when we had a security assessment to do, I, even before they sent anything to us, I knew exactly who was secure. Because if I have three players, I ask this one, say, hey, give me this, 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 this. If they send all the information and all the documentation and more and more, you go, okay, this crowd here might go, mm, I'm not sure about that, here's some, this one's trying to sue you, you guess which ones are bad, because this ones don't have anything, this ones have a good job. So the probability that this ones will be secure is really, really low. So I always find that openness brings a level of transparency and a level of accountability that you almost need to learn how to play that game. Yeah, you do. But <laughs> it's very effective. It, it is, and I think the um, I think that there has been some interesting cases recently. You know, Cambridge Analytica. Yep. Um, I, I, I'm not sure people had any um, any real understanding of how much of their data they were sharing um, when they've been handshaking. You know, left, right, and centre using core tools like Facebook. Yeah. But you know, the interesting part of that case is that when the first news came out, Facebook answer was, "It's not a vulnerability." Right, and it's only when people say, "What do you mean it's not vulnerability?" <laughs> you know, we, we might be talking about vulnerability. We don't want that to happen. So what Facebook was saying is that this is by design. I bet there was a, a lot of people. I, I'm not. I was not that into that world at the time. But I think there's a lot of people that deleted a lot of data after that. Because the reality is that that was a feature, yeah. right? It was, it, they were not even but abusing the system. it was a lack system. of understanding. It was a feature, you know, for a while, the, the Facebook was like, hey, here's my graph data, just consume it. So those are actually features. So guess what, if you're on the receiving end of it, the problem is what the guys in Cambridge Analytics did was, I think, call, cross like I would call the evilometer line, right? Yeah. The kind of, you know, they, there's, a, there's a line between suggestion and manipulation, and clearly they were crossing those lines, right? But there's a lot of companies who do that, you know, for a lot of other reasons. And, I, and that's why I think, you know, we need a bit of a dip now on the whole fact-based world. I think we're kind of in a bit of a dark age of fact-based environments. But I, I feel that this is an evolution. I think this is, we will come out of this and hopefully we can tilt kind of the direction of a lot more accountability and a lot more um, understanding of what are the side effects of what's happening. 
yeah, makes makes sense. And what about from a personal standpoint? Um, you know, is is there a personal transformation aspect that you'd like to share with us, Dennis? Is there something in your in your personal life that, that that's changed fundamentally? Um so I think the big one I've done in the last, I'll probably say, five years was the shift from being very technical into management. And so, I, and, and in fact, if I can give any advice, is I think delay that as much as you can. Right? And the reason why... <laughs> Never go into management. Well, I think there's a point where you want to. I think there's a point where you have to because I think there's a part where... You, you know, to drive change, you have to be at a certain level of authority. You have to control teams. You have to control budgets. You have to be able to define strategies. You have to interact with the stakeholders. But I think the fact that I delayed that move into, you know, later in my career, I remain very technical. So I can now make sure that I still am involved technically. So I can, it's a nice thing when you control the projects of what the team is doing. I can put myself on a couple of ones. You're coming across as a bit of a control freak here, Dennis. No, actually, no. I, actually, my, my view is to, I always let the team define their own strategies. I have very strong opinions. Yeah. But I, I always try not to give an order. In fact, I, I remember, you know, some comments on my leadership skills. Some My team member says, but sometimes I should pull rank more often. And, and I said, no, if you do that, you failed, right? I think it's okay for somebody to go that direction. I might even make sure that I, you know, I think you should go that direction, but sometimes they should go. Like, it's Slamming. fine. Yeah. And, and you, by natural, you already have a big center of gravity. So, you know, team will sometimes already go a certain path. But and having that means that even now I'm still very technical, and that means that when I walk in the room, I, I can go all the way from management all the way to the most technical person, which basically means I have a much, much depth of understanding of, of issues, which especially when you look at things like the cloud and other environments or even policies, I found that I were able to drive for some transformation in the risk framework world or the risk GRC world where other people struggle because they don't have that yeah, they can't make they that can't connection. connect the dots yeah and you know i was a, i think i guess i'm programming still but at the high level is this my abstraction layers are just a bit higher but it's still the same principle find a problem decompose into small bits figure out the ones you don't know experiment connect the dots build modules build tools and that's where the whole worldly maps again is where i found what i'm doing is i keep doing the loop of finding a problem moving into the kind of the commodity then evolving it and then keep playing that loop over and over again and the serverless world that we have now allow us to now when you come up with a solution it becomes enterprise ready that's that's a big difference in the past i remember doing a lot of solutions that are great but they only run on my computer or i have to deploy it to one server and then that has becomes a puppy they now yeah. become to be maintained where now with the kind of serverless world you can create a block and then push it there and it just works and it scales and it, if there's a lot of usage it goes up if there's no usage you don't cost anything so, so I think for me that was a big transformation in the last, you know, five years is how to understand business and how to understand risk and how to understand change at kind of, I would say, a, a high level of abstraction. Yeah, makes, uh, makes sense. Uh, brilliant. Well, I, uh, I mean, I have to say I'm sold on security. I'm thinking of a new career. Um, and I, uh, I really appreciate your time. Thank you very much. No, thank you. This was great.